Okay, so this afternoon, uh, we're continuing our series uh, in James, uh, titled Faith That Works. Uh, so we've been looking at the, the book of James. Uh, we've been thinking about what it means uh, to have a faith that is effective, a faith that works, a faith that is ultimately for the glory of God and the blessing of ourselves and, and everyone around us. Um, and we've been doing this for the last few months, I think. I'm trying to remember when we started this. Um, we're coming towards the finishing line when it comes to our series in James. So we only have a few weeks left. Uh, and we're going to be in James right up until uh, the end of this month. Then we have our missions week. And then we're going to start a brand new summer sermon series in July and August. So that's a plan for the next uh, few weeks or so. Um, so if you have your Bibles, let's have a look at James. I'm reading from the CSB Christian Standard Bible. Uh, the words are going to be up on the screen. So we're looking at James 5 and verses 9 through to 11. So James 5 and 9 to 11. So James says this, Brothers and sisters, uh, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Amen. So I know we've just prayed, but let's just do it again. Father, this is your word. Uh, we are your people. Uh, speak through me, Lord. Uh, use this time to change us. Transform our hearts and minds, and, and may we choose to say yes to your will in light of what we've looked at today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, don't know about you, but um, for those of us who were there on Wednesday, I was so encouraged uh, by our barbecue. Um, and at the end of our time, a few of us were just setting up chairs for today. And we were chatting and just kind of sharing collectively just by how, how blessed we were. Um, how God had used that time on Wednesday in a way that, that really brought about unity within the church. Um, but also allowed us to connect with our community in a bit more. Um, and I say that with the, the backdrop uh, of our membership covenant. So uh, some of you might know as, as a church... We, we spent a, a lot of time uh, in prayer uh, compiling uh, and communicating who we see God has, has called us to be uh, from his word. And so at the start of every year, early kind of February time, uh, we look at all that we believe that we are and all that we are called uh, to be from the word of God. In essence, it's, it's our loves, our seven loves, our vision, which is three parts, and our gospel habits, which is seven gospel habits. And the reality for you and I is it's one thing to sign a piece of paper. Any one of us uh, can sign a piece of paper. Um, it's another thing to have those biblical truths uh, written on our hearts day after day. To see these lived out within the life of the church in any given moment and in any given week. And, and I'm saying that first and foremost to myself before I say it to anyone else. So I was so encouraged by Wednesday because I could see so clearly uh, from that time, how much we were displaying what it is we had agreed uh, back in February. And in particular, the second love in our membership covenant, we love people. That's the second love. We love people. And it seems so simple to us, but how often we can forget that day to day. We love people. As Christ has so clearly demonstrated his love for us, what we can say this afternoon, this was a costly love from Christ to us. This was a generous love. On Wednesday, 
we were demonstrating something of that same love to one another as a church family, but also to our community as well. And it's so encouraging to say this afternoon that we had nine new people connect through this barbecue. And what struck me was how, how welcome they felt. They communicated it to us. Um, and as we gathered together around something as simple as a, a barbecue, in the midst of our supernatural Scottish summers, which we're, we're all aware of, um, we were blessed by being a blessing. So my encouragement to you, as we think about this second aspect of the covenant, is to keep going, keep going. As we have agreed this covenant together, a covenant that's rooted in scripture, keep living it out, keep loving people, and watch how joy-filled and satisfying that kind of life really is. So it's one thing recognizing it, we can all sign a piece of paper, but it's another thing cultivating that day after day. And it's only by God's strength that we can do that. All that we just prayed about a moment ago. Uh, this is very much the motive of why James writes what he writes in our passage today. Uh, we're thinking today about an exemplary faith. A faith that lives by example. And James gives what we understand to be a very simple, but very important command. And it's a command not to do something. Like so much of James, he highlights the things that we shouldn't do. It's a command not to do something in order that we may actually love people and love God with all that we are. And James wants us to see here that there are undeniable earthly consequences, there are undeniable eternal consequences for each one of us, depending upon how we respond to this particular verse or these verses. And this applies to all of God's word, of course. When we choose to receive God's word or we choose to reject God's word, there's always consequence. James is very explicit throughout his letter John is, is similar to James in terms of being so direct. We have to be aware of the spiritual consequences when it comes to receiving the word of God or rejecting the, God, rejecting the word of God, both in the short and the long term. So this command is both a simple one, but a very important one. James says in verse 9, it'll be up on the screen again, brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another. Do not complain about one another. And I know, I know what the temptation is when it comes to this verse. Um, our hearts can react to these words of James with a yeah but. This can be a yeah but verse. Do not complain, yeah but. You don't know what this person has said or done to me. Do not complain, yeah but. The circumstances of my life mean that I've got a right to complain about this situation or about that person. Do not complain, yeah but. I can't help it, this is who I am. This is part of my, my makeup, my DNA. I've got the moaning gene. James was not naive, and nor is God. When we read these words, there is an awareness that no yeah but will ever, ever justify our habits of complaint. So much so that we can confidently say today, when James says, do not complain about one another, what it is he means by that is, that we should not complain about one another. It's just as simple as that. Um, as we dig into this passage, that word complain is so important for us this afternoon. It's at the heart of what James says here. It's the Greek word stenazo. Stenazo. In the CSB, it's complain, but in a number of our translations, it's been translated grumble. Uh, the English Revised Version is murmur not. Um, and I couldn't imagine any one of us uh, saying that this afternoon. That this word stenazo can definitely be used in a positive sense. So we can stenazo 
in the sense that we hope for something better. Uh, Stenazo in the sense that we're dissatisfied with what we see. And in our dissatisfaction, we are looking to the one who's going to change it. So, so yes, we're complaining, but not in, a, in an unrighteous way. We're complaining in a way that believes that God's going to change something. And I would say one of the clearest examples of this is when Paul writes these words in Romans 8, 23. Paul says, not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also, we groan, we groan or grumble. The same Greek word, stenazo, we stenazo within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. The complaint in our heart can be, it can be one that's righteous. Because we're not blameful, we're hopeful. We believe that God has something better in store. We cannot see that day yet, but we do believe that this day will one day come to pass. So that's the first way that we can stenazo, so to speak. Sometimes a complaint, this complaint can be rooted in a deep sense of despair. Our complaint is from that inability to see any way forward. Helpful example would be the book of Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews says this in chapter 13 and verse 7. Chapter 13 and verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, (coughs) since they keep watch over your souls, as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with, and again, stenazo, and not with stenazo, not with grief, or not with groaning, not with complaining. For, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, that would be unprofitable for you. So, We can complain in the sense that we cannot see any way forward in our lives. We can complain in the sense that we hope for something better. But James doesn't use this word from a sense of hope or despair. He uses that word complain from a sense of being angry at someone. It could be anger directed towards God or anger directed towards someone else. And a helpful example, an Old Testament equivalent from Scripture would be the attitude and the actions of the Israelites. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.10 that the precursor to the Israelites' judgment and death was was what? It was their complaining. It was a stenazo. They were grumbling and moaning and complaining. They did so in anger towards Moses and towards God, and so they faced judgment. And this is exactly what we see in Numbers 11.1. Moses writes this. Now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. When the Lord heard heard his anger burned, and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. I think it's helpful uh, to listen to what Douglas Moo says on this subject of complaining as it relates to James. He writes this, uh, Grumbling against those who are close to us is particularly likely to occur when we are under pressure or facing difficult circumstances. We vent the pressure from a stressful work environment or from ill health on our close family and friends, our close friends and family rather. And I think that's, we all kind of get this. We all understand this. We can face these, these external pressures and then we take it out on someone else. Uh, this week I was struck uh, by this photo that came onto my, my social media feed. And it hopefully just gives us an idea of, of what can happen. If you look at it from left to right, top to bottom, it can be boss to employee, husband to wife, wife to child, child to your wee cat. Cat's getting it all here. Um, It might not look directly like this, but if you're the recipient of some kind of complaint from someone else, whether that be to your face or behind your back, 
you need to understand it's highly, highly likely that there's something else going on within their life. Uh, let's be honest this afternoon. If you're the one complaining, I don't think we're fully aware of it at the time. Um, how many of us honestly recognise that, that us complaining, us grumbling, us moaning about someone else is in fact connected to something else, to something else that's going on within our lives. So this afternoon, I want you to do something. This is very practical for us. I want you to identify the things right now in your life that you're complaining about. Just take a moment in your heart, in the quietness of your heart, to identify the things that you're dissatisfied about, the things that you're complaining about, in particular the things that are causing you anger towards someone else or anger towards God. And I want you to prayerfully dig deep into those complaints. What is it that's going, in, going on in your heart that's causing you to complain in that manner? What are the external circumstances of your life that have subtly or overtly pushed you into worry or concern, which has then led to a spirit of grumbling? Once you understand this, then you need to understand what you, what you then need to do. What do you need to repent of? Um, what do you need to walk in faith and trust God in so that you're then not led to moments and seasons of complaining? and grumbling because let's be honest this afternoon it doesn't benefit anyone it doesn't benefit you it doesn't benefit your heart it doesn't benefit the person that you're complaining to it doesn't benefit any aspect of any relationship Genesis chapter 3 is a really helpful example for us as we think about this idea of complaining the serpent tempts Eve with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, Eve listens to the serpent takes the fruit eats it Give some to her husband, Adam, who was sitting with her. They hide from God. God calls out to Adam and says to him, where are you? Where are you? And Adam replies, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God asks Adam, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And it's fascinating. This is probably the first complaint, the first ever complaint. Look how Adam responds here. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. So Adam complains to God about God and about Eve. He blames God for bringing this woman into his life and causing him to sin. Denison Baptist Church, watch out this afternoon. This is us. This is us when we complain. We are, in essence, replicating the reality of Genesis chapter 3 every single time we complain. In complaining, we do not recognize our own personal responsibility and whatever it is that we're in the midst of. We blame others, and we blame meaning by definition we're not taking responsibility. We play the victim card, and we are choosing in that moment not to trust God, not to believe that God is going to help us. So, be on guard. Be on guard. Watch how the enemy can trip us up. This afternoon, I want us to see from our passage that James presents us with three warnings, which essentially act as three consequences from a life that grumbles and complains. And the first warning is this. If you complain, you will face a harsher judgment. If you complain, you will face a harsher judgment. 
James unpacks this very clearly for us. Let's have a look again at the first part of verse 9, or verse 9. James says this, Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. When we read those words, uh, like so much of James, we cannot help but see them as an echo of Jesus' words in Matthew 7 and verse 1. Jesus says this, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. That's the essence of why we should never complain. We're judging another person and we have absolutely no right to judge anyone. Deep down we know we have no right to do it and yet so often we do it. Verse 2 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others and you will be measured by the same measure you use. What a challenge. I'm so challenged by that personally. I'm so aware of the times in which I do complain. So convicted as I share that with you. Uh, most of us, unless you've had your head in the sand for the last week, but most of you will be aware of a, a well-known TV presenter uh, who's recently left uh, one of the most popular TV shows in the UK. Uh, and no question, his actions uh, were wrong and he, he should have left. Uh, and as guilty as he has been, which he holds his hands up and recognises, um, I've been quite taken aback just by the level of vitriol that's been aimed at him from certain sections of the media. Uh, and he was interviewed by the BBC this week, and he, he was asked, and he asked of his critics, basically this, this simple question, uh, do you want me to die? That's what he said. Do you want me to die? Because that's where I am. Uh, one of his former colleagues in response, uh, she was live on the show that, that he left. And in the midst of others condemning him, uh, she said this on live TV, and with tears in her eyes, as far as I'm aware, she's not a Christian, but she said this, I never know what to say, but I remember what my mum used to say. My mum always said, use your Bible as a sat-nav in life. And in the Bible it says, he without sin cast the first stone. And I just don't want to. I don't want to say anything bad because obviously I'm in conflict. That's how I feel. And I think what this week has shown us is that there, there will be consequences when we complain and we judge and we condemn. And often we can, we can go ahead and do these things with no real awareness of, of the impact it's having on someone else. We've seen the mess of it in the news this week. And in James, <coughs> he highlights the dangers of complaining about others from a much more serious eternal perspective. So we've seen the kind of earthly consequences this past week, but we see it from an eternal perspective in light of what James says. And this is something Andrew spoke about uh, last week. This is also something we looked at together in our sermon series, The Last Things, back in January. Every single one of us in this room, we will all one day have to give an account. We will all have to give an account for every single thing that we have said and done, both good and bad. Revelation 20, the second part of verse 12, we read of how it is that we all, this will all come about. John tells us, uh, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. So as we stand before the white throne of judgment, there will be the books and there will be the book, capital B book. And inside the books, there will be a record of every single thing you have ever done in your life. Every single thing, all of the good, all of the bad, everything. 
We know this because John says here in verse 12, the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. So everything that you have ever thought, said or done that was for God has been recorded in the books. And everything that you have ever thought, said or done that was against God will equally be recorded in those books. In other words, there's going to be no escaping everything that we have ever thought, said or done before this holy God. None of us will get away with anything. It will all be contained within these books. And that's quite a thought today. And there's correlation between the books and the book. If your name is in the book of life, then there will be undeniable evidence of a fruitful and righteous life within the books. So you and I will have to give an account for every single word we've spoken, either indirectly or directly, which has been a complaint about someone else or to someone else. And the frequency and nature of these complaints over the entirety of our lives are a helpful indicator of whether or not our names are in the book, capital B. So this judge is standing at the door, meaning that we will all have to give an account. And it seemed to be such a natural focus <clears throat> for James. He constantly communicates, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, Christ is coming. And so important was it for James that he wanted our practical living to have eternal focus and vision including how we use our tongues, including whether or not we are going to complain. Are we going to complain in a righteous way and hope that things will one day change, or are we going to complain in an unrighteous way with anger? When you look at the entirety of the New Testament, you discover there's over 300 different references to Christ's return. 300 different references, which by implication point to the coming judgment. So from Matthew to Revelation, one in every 13 verses are about Christ returning. So that should bring great encouragement. But let's be honest this afternoon, that should bring great challenge to our lives as well. And particularly as we think about what we say and what we don't say, what we do and what we don't do, and how often do we think about this? How often do we think day after day about the fact that Jesus is going to return? I think it's a really helpful antidote to spirit-filled obedience as our focus on Christ and the fact that he will one day return. Alec Mottier in his commentary on James notes this. He says, It is striking that all James needs to say to his readers is that the Lord is coming. He does not enter into long explanations and descriptions. He can assume that they know all about it, for it was a familiar truth to the New Testament church. If we wish to be New Testament believers and to think in terms of New Testament priorities, then the fact of this great advent, the sure expectation of it, and the desire not to be ashamed before him at his coming, should be in the forefront of our thoughts. So challenge for you this afternoon. As you think about this week, let Christ's return be at the forefront. He could return this week. He will come like a thief in the night. We, we don't know when it will be. But my guess is a thief in the night is often a surprise. We're not expecting a thief to turn up in the middle of the night. Meaning that Christ will turn up when we least expect it. So that's the first warning. You will be judged. And warning two, if you complain, you will not be Christ-like. And I want us this afternoon to have a look at verse 10 in the first part of verse 11. James says this. He says, Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. And James is tapping back into that theme of patience. Uh, what we spent time looking at last week and he wants us to replace a complaining and grumbling spirit 
with one that chooses to exhibit a life of suffering and patience. And I know that doesn't really sell. I'm calling you to suffer and to be patient. It's not a very attractive thing to pursue, but in reality, this is where we find joy. In reality, for each one of us this afternoon, to suffer is to find ourselves in the middle of something really difficult. And in order to show patience, more often than not, we find ourselves in a situation where we're tempted to display impatience. And for James, he wants us to see a group of individuals who did this well. He doesn't get into names, but he speaks about the prophets of the Old Testament. For James, his heart is that we would be captured by their example of not complaining about all that was thrown at him. Instead, they remained faithful to God and chose to be his mouthpiece to a world around him that was marked by rebellion and sin. So I want us just to, to look at a few examples of prophets who did this well. Uh, they exhibited what it looks like to be patient, to endure, and to not complain. So if we look at the, the example of Jeremiah, perhaps Jeremiah was the prophet who suffered the most. Uh, Jeremiah was called to proclaim the word of the Lord, and the men and women of his own town wanted to kill him. So the people he, he grew up with and knew and loved, these were the people who wanted him dead. And they actually said to him, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will certainly die at our hands. I mean, they were, they were definite, they were clear about it. And what did, what did Jeremiah do? Well, he didn't complain. He did not blame. He did not blame them. And he did not blame God. He didn't blame anyone else. He suffered and he endured in, in the name of the Lord. And his suffering was not just from his own people. It was also from many pagan kings that he regularly encountered. So Jeremiah is a helpful example for us today, but we could also look at the example of Ezekiel. And God actually told Ezekiel before it came to pass that his wife would be taken from him. And, and this would be an act of God himself. In Ezekiel 25, 16 to 17, we read this word from the Lord to Ezekiel. Son of man, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you with a fatal blow. But you must not lament or weep or let your tears flow. Groan quietly challenge for Ezekiel and in verse 18 this is what Ezekiel says at this moment I spoke to the people in the morning and my wife died in the evening the next morning I did just as I was commanded didn't complain I did just as I was commanded look at the example of the prophet Hosea he was told to marry a woman of promiscuity as a picture of what Israel had done to God and Hosea did not complain God used this powerful example in order for Hosea to communicate with a rebellious people of just how, how short they had fallen within their lives. And so as James highlights the example for us this afternoon, eh, what can we learn from their examples and others? Well, there's no doubt in my mind, doing God's will means without question you will suffer. If you want to live in the centre of God's will, then you have to take up your cross. And you have to suffer. Maintaining spiritual integrity and waiting patiently with endurance can only ever be cultivated in a context where the easy option for you is to complain, to grumble, to turn your back on God and others. And it's not just that the prophets suffered and chose not to complain about it. They actually used these moments as an opportunity to draw near to God and to be a powerful witness for him. Have a look at what Blomberg and Mariam say 
on this example that James cites here. They say this, As the prophets spoke in the name of the Lord, so all Christians, bearing a reference to Christ and their very name, represent him to the world and all they say and do, so that they ought to act accordingly and not bring him shame. So these moments of suffering, yes, there are moments to complain, but there are also moments to trust God and to be all that God calls us to be. And just so we're clear about the example of the prophets, their lives, all of our lives point to a much greater prophet, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus himself said that all of the Old Testament points to him and speaks about him. So when we look at the examples of these prophets, we can't help but, but be reminded of a greater example, and his name is Jesus. The one who, like Jeremiah, was rejected by his own town in fear of his own life because of his faithfulness to God. The one who, like Ezekiel, knew what it was to experience loss in order for God's purpose to be fulfilled. The one who, like Hosea, knew what it was to be rejected by those he loved the most, his bride, the people of God. So as we make a conscious, empowered choice this week to not complain and to follow the example of his prophets, I want you to understand, I want us all to understand that we are following the example of Christ in these moments. And he's the one who loved you. He's the one who died for you. He's the one who has changed and transformed you by his grace. So what an encouragement for us but we do not live this life alone. By walking this way, we understand what it means to be Christ-like. And this leads us on to our final warning from James. Uh, if you complain, you will not see God. You will not see God. This is such a challenge for us. Let's take a moment to read the second part of verse 11 together. James says this, You have heard of Job's endurance, and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Um, I've been really challenged by this verse, and particularly in light of my Bible reading plan. Um, a number of you are going through the same plan. You will know that we've just finished the life of Job. And as James highlights here, not just the endurance of Job, but also the outcome of his faith, we must do the same as Job did. So Job had a large family. He was wealthy. He was healthy. And for reasons we, we don't fully understand, God gave Satan permission to put Job to the test to see whether he loved God because of all of his earthly blessings or because he earnestly loved God with all that he was. So Job, as a result, loses his entire family, all of his wealth, his health, and his three friends draw alongside him and say that the reason for his suffering is because of sin in his life. And a fourth friend tells Job that he needs to submit to God's plan for his life in the midst of what he's going through. And it's at this end point, after so much suffering, a suffering which some commentators have said lasted a number of years, that Job says what are probably the most important words in the entire book of Job. In chapter 42 and verse 5, Job says this, I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. After all that I've experienced this season of suffering, I can honestly say I've seen you. I see you. That was the outcome that Job testified about after a long season of suffering in this life. And this is the outcome that James speaks of when he highlights the example of Job. And this is why it's so important that you and I do not complain or grumble about God to God or about others and to others. Because we will not, when we do that, we will not have godly character formed in us. And as a result, we will not see God for who he is. But you and I, in our choosing not to sin, instead receiving whatever suffering we might receive 
which see, would see God in that moment. And we would see God in a way that we have never seen him before. That's my prayer for each one of us today. I wonder this afternoon, are you willing to go through whatever it takes in order that you might see God and know God more deeply? Is this your ultimate aim and goal of life? Is this the deepest pursuit of all that you are? Jesus himself. The Apostle Paul connects the role of suffering and knowing God more deeply himself. <clears throat> so he says this in Philippians 3.10. He says, my goal is to know him. So my, my primary, my ultimate goal is to know Christ, to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Again, it's that word. The connection between knowing God and suffering is undeniable. It's throughout our Bibles being conformed to his death. This afternoon as we close, let me just ask what I recognize as a difficult but important question. And I'm asking that question of myself before I ask any one of us. And this is a question we can only ever answer in his grace and power. Uh, would you rather suffer and know God or live in comfort and not know him? So would you rather suffer and know God or live in comfort and not know him? And it is true. <coughs> we can live in comfort and we can know God. That's true. But more often than not, our deepest moments connecting with God and knowing his grace and experiencing his fellowship are the moments of real suffering. So ask yourself, as I ask myself this question, would you rather suffer and know God or live in comfort and not know him? As we close, let me just share this story. There's a father who who tells a story of a day he decided to, to walk through the woods uh, with his eight-month-old son uh, sitting on his front. Uh, and the day started off pretty well. Uh, he could see his son as he's walking. He could see uh, how happy he was. The sun was glistening in the trees. And the father was enjoying the time he was spending with his son. There was a real sense of peace and contentment as they walked through the woods together. But then the weather seemed to take a pretty rapid turn for the worse. And from light clouds and sunshine, they found themselves in the middle of a pretty significant storm. Wind, rain, lightning. His son, as he was being carried, was, was in doubt. There's no doubt of a change in his surroundings. So his son, even though he's eight months old, he was fully aware that, that something had changed. And so he started to scream and scream and scream like any eight-month-old would scream, unhappy at what he found himself in. And the father's job was to get his son back home. But it meant the two of them having to walk through this storm together. Uh, and he shares of how he could never say for definite, but he could imagine that the son was almost at a loss. This wee guy was, was exasperated. Uh, all that he was going through within his little eight-month-old self Almost of a kind of, why are you taking me through this? Did you not check the weather before you left? What is the purpose of me and us eh, going through this kind of attitude? But looking back, this father would not swap this moment for any other moment that he would have with his son. This was a time when his son clung tightly onto his father. He needed him like he had never needed him before. And for the father, this was a precious and a powerful moment between him and the one that he loved the most. 
And as we close, I just want to highlight this afternoon that when we complain in the midst of our suffering, we not only forgo God's will for our lives, we also forgo intimacy with God. So use whatever it is you find yourself in the middle of. If you find yourself in a season of suffering, don't use it as a moment to complain. Use it as a moment to cling, to cling to God and to trust him and watch how God cultivates fellowship and intimacy with him. His ultimate purpose for your life is one where you know him more than you have ever known him before. So you, you can look back on 2023 as you're sitting in 2024 and say, I know God more deeply than I've ever known him before because of a journey I've taken from 2023 to 2024. And you can do the same for every single year from that point. This afternoon, I'm aware of the fact that perhaps you've never welcomed God into your life. Maybe you've never made a decision to make him priority, number one. Let me invite you, if that's you today, thank him. Thank him for all that he has done for you. Confess your sin before him and ask him to be Lord of your life. You can do that today. If you want to know what it means to live that kind of way, then do speak to me after our time and I'll count it a privilege to pray with you and for you. Perhaps um, you're struggling to hold on today. Maybe you're in the midst of something that, that makes no sense. Um, perhaps this has been a time where you've doubted God, a time where you've sinned, maybe through complaining, if today is a moment to run to him. In the midst of your uncertainty and confusion and doubt and sin, run to God, run to him, cling to him, trust him, declare, like Job, declare that your aim and your goal in life is to know him more deeply so that you can say, now I see you, now I see you. And again, speak with me after our time. Or speak with someone you know and we'll take time to pray for you. And maybe this afternoon you're unwell. Maybe you're in pain. Maybe you would like prayer for healing. You know, as we have a time of tea and coffee now, as we sing and as we have a time of tea and coffee, there is opportunity to receive prayer. Uh, and we believe in the God who heals according to his sovereign plan and purpose. So use this as a moment to receive prayer for that, if that's how you feel led. For you and I this afternoon, I hope we can see this is what it means to live out an exemplary faith, to suffer well and to rest our lives fully in his power so that we can then say we know him. If all that we are, we can say, I know him and I see him. Let's pray. So Father, we, we take this time and, and ask that you would now equip us, go before us, Lord, as we now sing and as we have fellowship. Lord, use this time to minister to us May this be a moment of encounter for us as we have heard from your word and as we now respond in faith, not just in this moment, but as we go into this week. Lord, would you protect us from the evil one? Would you continue to work in and through our church family? And would you unite us so that we can be effective for those who have yet to come to know you? We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Love you guys.